Welcome to China in Context, the weekly podcast from the SOAS China Institute in London. I'm Zuri Lenetsky, research fellow at the Eurasia Group Foundation in Washington, D.C. Canada is home to a large community of people with Chinese heritage, but politically, its relationship to the People's Republic of China is fraught. There are allegations that China has been interfering in the Canadian political system and preventing free speech. In the spring of 2023, Canada expelled a Chinese diplomat, saying he'd been harassing a politician and his relatives. China quickly retaliated by throwing out a Canadian diplomat. I'm pleased to welcome as our guest, a fellow Canadian who knows Asia well. Jonathan Berkshire Miller is a senior fellow and a director of foreign affairs, national security and defense at the McDonald Laurier Institute, a think tank based in Ottawa. Jonathan, thanks so much for accepting our request to take on this important topic. Thanks so much, Zuri. It's a real pleasure to be on. And uh, thanks for uh, hosting this discussion on a really important topic. It's absolutely my pleasure. Let's start with claims that the Chinese have been interfering in Canadian politics. For those outside of Canada who may not have been following the issue closely over the past few months, can you explain what's been going on? Sure. So, I mean, it's been a bit of a tumultuous ride in the past, especially five years for the Canada-China relationship. And and the way I sort of frame it in many senses is that we had our ups and downs, hills and valleys. Um, but at this point, if we think that we're in the valley part of it, um, we're more in the trough rather than the valley. It's been an extended difficult period in the relationship. Um, and there's been a number of factors. But let me touch first on, on the most recent, which you asked about, which is the election meddling and political interference. Basically, we have a, a whistleblower who uh, has released a lot of classified documents to Canada's most prestigious and, and uh, well-read national paper, which is the Globe and Mail. And what those documents are saying is that there were significant uh, intelligence reports and pieces of intelligence data that were presented through assessments uh, uh, to the prime minister's office and others um, about the, the challenges and threats of uh, Chinese election meddling in both the 2019 and 2021 elections. Um, we've appointed a special rapporteur uh, on foreign interference and on election meddling. Uh, he's released the first report recently, which came out in May. I think many, especially in the opposition, are unsatisfied with that report. They feel that effectively he doesn't come to any significant conclusions and says there's no real firm evidence uh, of meddling, but the, the final report is supposed to come in October. So can you tell us, do you think that China actually has the capacity or the motivation to rig an election in Canada? What would it gain from doing that? You know, whether it's actually rigging an election or ensuring that an election goes a certain way, I think that is almost a little bit beyond the point. I think that the, the bigger question is whether they have the interest uh, and capabilities to influence and interfere. And I think on that you know question, absolutely they do. Um, and I would say we're not unique to this. In some sense, you take some solace for that. The fact that you know it's not just Canada that's being targeted. I think we see our Australian friends, um, you know, especially countries with significant Chinese diaspora. Uh, that's not to you know say that 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 you know they do this at the same measure in, in each country, um, but but absolutely they do have the capabilities uh, and interest to do so. I mean, on the capability side, a lot of this is run through China's United Front work, uh, and on the interest side, um, you know, effectively what they're trying to do is, is safeguard Chinese interests. So basically, um, if they feel that there's certain parties of the day that um, that are reflecting interests that don't represent those of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, and they can try to swing some of those interests uh, through supporting candidates that that they feel will either push back to that or will not 
press hard on issues such as those in Xinjiang uh, or on Tibet or Taiwan or all the, the, the core issues that China cares about, um, they'll be they'll happily find ways to to support them. You know, I think this is an important um, time to sort of talk about the difference between, you know, uh, normal foreign influence and, and usual diplomacy versus foreign interference. I think what's what's challenged about these situations is that it's covert in nature um, and, and clandestine. Um, so that's where it gets into the, the, the you know, the, the foreign interference side. Canada is a North American country, but it's also a Pacific nation with a long Pacific coastline. What is the Indo-Pacific strategy for Canada? You know, Canada has been thinking about the Asia Pacific for a long time. As you mentioned, it's a, you know, has a long Pacific coastline, um, founding member of APEC, um, you know, a dialogue partner in the ASEAN regional forum, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but we've, we've really failed strategically for several years to, to, to realize that Asia is a part of our identity. So I think the Indo-Pacific strategy, um, there's a couple of things going on here. One of them, obviously, is related to the, the challenges that we've had in a relationship with China. Um, and we talked a little bit about them now. Um, there was also our two citizens, which a lot of Canadians would refer to as the two Michaels, uh, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spaver, who were detained for nearly three years arbitrarily in China. Um, that sort of elevated the discussion, at least of, on China, from a you know page twenty six discussion in the newspaper to a to a page one and a consistent page one discussion. So you know effectively what that did was um, it changed the dynamic that it wasn't just folks like me and you that are are interested in it, but but actually regular Canadians um, started realizing um, at least some of the, the negative elements of the relationship. So that China is one part of it, but what I've always argued, and I think the government, um, you know, had some benefits in through through the final product, was that the Indo-Pacific is clearly bigger than China. Um, China is a part of the Indo-Pacific, but is not the Indo-Pacific, and I think that's the the sort of the fundamental point. Um, what I think is is interesting about this strategy is, of course, some of the language on China is is hard hitting. Um, it references China as a disruptive uh, actor. Um, but it also talks about the need to to work harder with with partners such as Japan, South Korea, um, India gets a significant section here, uh, and interesting enough, even Taiwan, which maybe we can talk about a bit later. But Taiwan has a has a significant section there. I think it's mentioned seven times. Um, and if you were to you know go back in time, uh, even five years ago, uh, the idea that the government would would mention uh, Taiwan so significantly in, in an Indo Pacific strategy, I think, would have been very dubious. So this shows that there are shifting tides, or shifting um, sands in the region. Um, and what I would say is, you know, what propelled this? Some of it was the China uh, factor. Some of it was the economic and demographic uh, changes in the Indo-Pacific. But also, we see a lot of our allies and, and partners are also looking this way. Um, we know the United States obviously has its strategy, but it's not just responding to the United States. Um, you know, Japan uh, was one of the intellectual, um, you know, originators of the Indo-Pacific concept. We have uh, India looking at it, Australia, ASEAN itself has an outlook for the Indo-Pacific, um, in addition to several European states. So I think the Canadian side felt comfortable that, um, you know, this was a well-accepted idea and that, you know, well, why shouldn't we, um, as a country with a Pacific coastline um, and equities in that region, uh, pursue one? All right. Well, Perfect segue. Let's talk for a moment about Taiwan. Where does Canada stand um, in its diplomatic relations with Taiwan? And how does that interact with its Indo-Pacific approach or specifically its approach to China? 
Well, so similar to a lot of other countries, uh, Canada has a one China policy um, where we uh, note, um, you know, China's claim on Taiwan. I would say, you know, it's it's not that we agree with Chinese uh, China's uh, territorial claim on on Taiwan, but do we do agree that there is one China? Um, so we have a, a very similar policy to to other Western states. We're starting to see a little bit of a pushback on that now, um, whether it's uh, supporting, for example, Taiwan's inclusion in some international fora. You know, we're not taking a position on on sovereignty, but we're saying, hey, we just had a global pandemic. Um, Taiwan uh, can help. While we were struggling very deeply at, in the early stages of the pandemic, uh, Taiwan was was the one to to send us over masks and other PPE. It's clear that Taiwan is a partner with us on a lot of these transnational issues, and we're starting to find ways to recognize that. Is that we're looking at other forms of of non-economic cultural cooperation with Taiwan, such as disinformation. We realize, you know, we talked a bit about election meddling and interference in Canada. I mean, no country <laughs> faces this challenge more as it relates to uh, you know, the PRC than, than Taiwan. Um, and they have another election coming up as well. Um, so we're very closely sharing information and, and ideas and concepts with, with the Taiwanese now on, uh, on countering disinformation, misinformation. Last year, in a speech at the University of Toronto, Canadian Foreign Minister Melanie Jolie portrayed China as an increasingly disruptive global power that seeks to reshape the global environment against the interests and values of the West. What's your view of her appraisal? Melanie Jolie is is sort of representing basically the reality of the situation where we're at right now. Um, you know, again, if you were to go back in time, and this is not just you know, and related to China, but more broadly in our foreign policy. If you were to go back 20 years ago, um, you know, a lot of scholars or, or analysts on foreign policy would would talk about bifurcations of economics and trade. And, you know, you could be, you could trade, uh, but you had the security issues that you had to risk on the other side, that you had to manage the risks on the other side. Um, but what we've realized is probably that false bifurcation was never true. Uh, it wasn't true, you know, in the 90s. It wasn't true in the 50s. Um, and it's definitely not true now. Um, on the other side, we don't have to sort of, um, you know, tear our hair out and say that, you know, business can't engage and, you know, there's there's no way that, uh, you know, if, if, if national security challenges or adversarial challenges are there that we, we can't find any way to find opportunities. But I think what she's saying here is that, look, um, the foreign policy challenges are widespread. Um, they're interconnected, um, whether it's, you know, um, you know, forced technology transfer, you know, industrial espionage, et cetera. Um, potentially arbitrary detentions, which we've seen several Japanese citizens, for example, recently um, uh, in the business world being detained in China, um, is that there are risks. Um, and the risks are higher um, than they would be in, in many places of the world that we we currently engage, whether it's Europe um, uh, or other places in, in Southeast Asia, et cetera. So I, I think basically what she's trying to do there is say that um, you know, the market uh, in China, we're not saying get out of China. We understand Canadian businesses have been there for a long time. Um, but fundamentally, we need to understand that those risks are there um, and that economic security is is, is now national security. Um, and uh, I think that the second step for that, so what, what we need to do is not just say that to business, but we need to have a really ongoing discussion with them and involve them in in the process of, of, of you know, maybe making and shaping foreign policy. Um, and that's something we haven't done the greatest job of traditionally, but I'm hoping that we get more in tune with them and, and, and really understand their concerns as well. All right. Canada is a member of the G7, uh, which attempts to speak with one voice on foreign policy issues. 
What are the implications of these clashes between China and Canada in terms of the G7, the meeting um, of which just went through in uh, Japan uh, what, two weeks ago now? Yeah, so as you said, uh, you know, G7's become one of the, you know, uh, again, one of the premier clubs. I mean, I think for a while, um, G20 sort of surpassed the the influence of G7, but I think as geopolitics has returned quite abruptly, and of course, you know, since Russia's been uh, removed from the G7, um, we've seen that its significance, especially on a lot of these geopolitical issues, has, has, has returned. Um, you know, on China... There's a variety of different viewpoints, um, you know, even though there's consensus in some ways in the, you know, the, the most recent communique, I think, was pretty hard hitting on a, a lot of issues, economic coercion, um, Taiwan Straits, um, and, you know, many different de-risking, um, you know, was one of the the languages on, on economic challenges and, and trade with China. Um, but generally, I think the Canadian voice is is pretty standard in, in, in the G7. I mean, but I think we're seeing generally within the G7 a more sort of a realistic uh, assessment. Okay, thank you so much, Jonathan, for discussing Canada's concerns about Chinese interference in its domestic politics. I've learned a lot. That was Jonathan Berkshire Miller, Director and Senior Fellow of the Foreign Affairs, National Security and Defense Program at the McDonald Laurier Institute in Ottawa. This podcast is a co-production of the Eurasia Group Foundation and the SOAS China Institute, part of the University of London. And you can find out more about the Institute's courses and research at soas.ac.uk. But for now, that's all from us here at the China in Context podcast team. Thank you.